0: Welcome to House of Data, a show exploring how data is influencing decisions at the most ambitious companies in housing. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Together we will dive into how housing market participants are ingesting, organizing, and making decisions using data and the competitive advantages that follow. I am the Director of Data Strategy at Altos Research, owned by HW Media, and we supply some of the most dynamic companies in housing with unique intelligence across every housing market nationwide. You can learn more about Altus Research and this podcast by going to altusresearch.com or by sending me an email at alex at hwmedia.com. My guest in this episode is Brandon Lewoski, Senior Director of Research at House Canary. Brandon's work at House Canary and much of his career has focused on artificial intelligence and how to design models with fairness in mind. He even has a PhD in AI from UT San Antonio, so I can't think of a better guest for a conversation on AI's impact in the housing market. Brandon and I talk about fairness in AI, computer vision's impact on AVMs, developing better data models, and where AI is going in real estate. Please enjoy my episode with Brandon Lawosky. Brandon, thank you for coming on the podcast uh, for House of Data. Really excited to talk about House Canary, all things AI, uh, computer vision, just a couple notes that we we talked about last time. Um, one thing was really interesting that I haven't heard anyone else do before is you got a phd in fair machine learning uh would love to hear kind of about that and then your work at house canary too
1: yeah so uh thanks for having me on uh it's it's great to talk ai i mean i spent the last five six years of my life so focused on ai it's kind of nice to see especially the fair side of things really come to light in more recent times um i kind of took a a non-traditional path to my phd so I actually started uh, as a math teacher. I, I taught high school math for, for six years. Um, decided that was no longer the career path I want to take. Went back to, to, to school to get my computer science degree. And I didn't know at the time, but if you're good at math and computers, AI is kind of like the perfect path for you to go. So this is back like in 2016, 2017, when the peak of like the the, the wave of deep learning started. Finished my bachelor's degree. And I noticed if I want to get a good paying job, I better kind of go down the PhD path in terms of like AI and and computer science. So I actually got a PhD um, in artificial intelligence here at UTSA in San Antonio with a concentration of data analytics. Um, It was actually a part-time program. So I'm actually the first person at UTSA to graduate with this degree. Um, I beat somehow, uh, I beat all the full-time students. Through this program uh, but my dissertation really really focused on the, the fairness aspect of language models you know that's kind of the hot topic in, t- in today's ai and, and, and deep learning um, kind of ecosystem is everything's language models with chat gpt uh, but i really focused more specifically on how both the data and the model itself can actually have disparate treatment across different dialects using language models so it's very like when you get your phd you kind of start with a very like wide and trying to get a big understanding of what ai is and then over time i kind of narrowed down to the kind of the fairness of language models and how they 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 can treat different dialects uh when it comes to things like classification and, and, and natural language understanding
0: so what attracted you about fairness specifically
1: so uh Originally, it was uh, being a PhD. The number one thing you want to do is to publish, right? That's like the hardest thing to do. So many graduate students get to their dissertation, their defense, and they don't have the the publication to uh, kind of defend themselves, saying, "I've contributed to the to the field. I deserve a PhD." So honestly, the very first time I was introduced to fairness, I just went up to my professor. Uh, who was teaching an NLP class at the time, and I said, hey, uh, professor, I don't want this to be a waste of my time. Like, I, I'm trying to graduate fast. I have two kids. I'm working full time. I want to I wanna graduate as fast as I can, so I need publications. What is a paper that you're working on right now that you don't have time to finish? Because you're a professor, you have a, a research lab. I'll do that as my class project, and we can publish together. So his first response was, great, I love fairness. I've been working on this paper on fairness on Twitter and understanding how language models can impact influenza data in terms of language models. Uh, do you wanna work on it? And that was kind of my introduction to the fairness. At, at that point in my, in my education, I was just barely learning AI. I didn't even get into the, 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 the understanding that there could be disparate treatment or unfairness or bias in a model. But he introduced me into that topic, um, and then I kind of went head first, and all my papers from then on kind of focused on on fairness, which is kind of ironic because now in my career, most of my work at at House Canary, or a big chunk, big portion of my work at House Canary, kind of focuses on the same aspect of of fairness and in, in, in automation about in ABMs.
0: So this was uh, a study on a paper using Twitter. You said.
1: Yeah. So my very first publication on the fairness side was a data set from 2016, I believe, where like everyone was tweeting back whenever Twitter was like, hey, I'm making a sandwich send Right. Where everyone was like literally tweeting every (laughs) aspect of their life. Uh, When people were getting sick with the swine flu, everyone was like tweeting. I'm sick. I have a fever. I have a stomach. My mom's sick, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of people created... uh, Influenza classification models to see if they can isolate hot spots of the flu or the swine flu. But we found that most models that were created were actually unfair towards kind of low resource dialects. Um, if you use a lot of slang or, or phonics or like location specific language, the model could had a higher chance of, of misclassifying your tweets. So that's kind of where my, my fairness studies began.
0: Okay, so stuff like you from, you know, Pittsburgh like that sort of thing would get different treatment than, you know, more broad sayings.
1: Right, exactly. Like think of uh the way that a dialect in like Boston versus New Orleans versus Texas. Right? Those three locations are very like unique languages from from the Texas country to Cajun uh in Louisiana to, you know, that the the very distinct East Coast uh slang words, those all kind of uh, can lead to misclassification of of language models.
0: So if AI is prone to unfair data or unfair results, why is that? What's causing that?
1: Yeah, I think there's kind of two approaches or or, or two reasonings here. Um, One of the first approaches, and, and this has kind of been a big in my opinion, a big uh, a swing in, in AI, which is, you know, in, in the beginning of my, my education, everything was so focused on the model, right? You know, can we make the next best, best model? We went from a neural net to convolutional neural nets to recurrent neural nets to language models to like all these crazy complex models where like, you know, now these, these language models are trillions of parameters that have to be trained so much focus in the beginning was on on the model side of things and I call it model centric ai what we're seeing is this kind of transition now into what I call or or what's coined like data centric ai where the model itself will only provide minimal gains right like you can have a complex model that's very very good but if we decide to go to what's being input into the data and really focus on the data side of AI, kind of data-centric machine learning, data-centric artificial intelligence, and make sure the quality, uh, the quantity of the data being fed into these models is at the highest it can be. That's where we see most of our performance gains uh, in AI. Uh, my 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 favorite example is like ChatGPT. Everyone uses it, but that technology is not brand new. Uh, that model GPT three has been out for many many years. But now that we have the data, train train it. It's been trained. Uh, the model itself is not the the innovation here. It's the amount of data that was able to fed through it and the quality of that data uh, during training. Uh, in the in the AVM space, that's very very critical. You know, there's a lot of people trying to create the next cool AVM model, but so much performance in AI, machine learning, statistical modeling, whatever you want to call that little bubble of, of modeling, if we focus more on the data side, making sure it's high quality, making sure it's um, representative of, of, of all different ethnicities, races, it's, 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 it encompasses the entire real estate market and doesn't favor one geographic area, that's where we see the fairness start to improve. Um, also (laughs) the kind of things you put into these variables, these, these models is is huge, right? Um, in terms of language model that you really can't put in, um, inappropriate features into a model, but a very obvious example of, of how language can be biased. If I start with a very basic sentiment model. Right? Is this tweet positive or negative? If I collect tweets only in New York City, the word Boston Red Sox is going to have a a very strong correlation with a negative sentiment. And then I go to Boston and I collect tweets, the word Yankees is going to have a very strong negative sentiment. Now, I take that same model that's trained only in New York, only in Boston, I bring it to Texas, and I say, I love the Yankees, that Yankees word has so much correlation with negativity because of the data sample I collected it from, it's gonna impact my language model. So making sure the data used to train is inclusive and very, very broad is very important in having these fair language models.
0: So it's the volume of data that helps get you a more fair model then, like the, the sheer amount of data is gonna get you there.
1: Volume is, yeah, volume is definitely important, but more specifically, I think inclusive inclusiveness is is more important there, right? Cuz I can have a billion tweets from Texas, but if I train my model in Texas and I run it in Boston, volumes there, but it's not very inclusive or of all different types of languages. So having that widespread of 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 language available to the model to learn is is the key there.
0: So, so then applying this to AVMs, um the What data sets are you adding or have added to a house canary AVM that helps you become a more, a more fair model?
1: Sure. Uh, In the case of house canary, uh, you know, in training AVMs, there's two pieces. A it's, it's, it's knowing which features should not be allowed in a model versus what should I include? That's the biggest thing in having a fair AVM um, is focusing on what, input features are actually important to valuing a house, right? Because the, the automated valuation model, its goal is to say, hey, you know, Alex, one, two, three, Apple Street is worth $400,000. It's not there to say, hey, Alex, you're a good homeowner. Your credit score is great. You would be a, a, a good home buyer. So when we train these AVMs, the first step of, of creating a fair valuation model is really restricting those input features into what's only necessary to predict housing prices. Um, for an instance, we met with uh, FHFA uh, to present, uh, you know, some standards to the government on what we think fair AVMs, appropriate AVMs look like, and they mentioned to us that credit that one of the AVM providers that met with them suggested using credit score as an input feature that it increased the accuracy of their AVM when they included credit score. And in my opinion, that's just extremely inappropriate. Um, credit score is specific to the home owner itself, the home buyer. That's independent from what the, the, the actual dwelling, the, 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 the collateral worth of a dwelling is. So we, we gotta be careful on the input features. And this can be proxies as well. So when we're training these large models to predict housing prices, You'll see some folks and and, and some modelers use um, like crime rates and school ratings. Uh, They may use income level of the neighborhood to help predict the home prices. Uh, At House Canary and also my personal opinion, we actually don't include those in our trainings because those different interactions between all the features plus kind of you know proxies for ethnicity or race those interactions in the models can actually lead to disparate treatment when it's used in training when understanding the error of an AVM. So that's kind of the first line of defense is really understanding what features are going into your model and are they truly important in valuing a home a home value?
0: Are there any features and data points that you didn't really expect to have much of an impact but had a disparate impact than what you expected for, you know, against fairness?
1: We've we've only really tested adding a handful of features into the model. So one of them, obviously, is credit score. Uh, When that statement was made to us that we should add credit scores to our model, we kind of wanted to say, like, wait a second, hold on, that's probably not the best idea. Um, That didn't lead to any significant amount of improvement or or lift in AVM performance. Uh, We've tested and and, and tried a bunch of different features uh, during... We have, like, these internal research hackathons where we kind of take a copy of our production model, we put it in a dev situation, we just throw whatever we want at it and see how it performs. And we've tried things all across the board of adding different census track information in terms of, you know, ethnicities, uh, 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 income levels, school ratings, crime rates. We don't see that improvement on the ABM side in terms of accuracy. Uh, we even try some crazy things like uh, <laughs> one hackathon I tried, uh, what is the distance to the nearest Whole Foods? right? Because everyone knows that a Whole Foods is typically like the first sign of gentrification and potentially, you know, prices increasing in a neighborhood. So we've tried all these crazy things in these like dev environments. And and if we stick to the most imp- important features of a, prop- of a home and what is important in predicting price, we typically have the best performance, even when we go and we try all these other kind of variations of our production model it always comes down to that set core features that are truly representative and used to to estimate the value of property
0: i know you've also spent a lot of time thinking about and working on computer vision so images of homes and incorporating that what's the value of photos relative to some of these other factual data points that you've been inputting into the avm
1: yeah i think um computer vision you know you'll see that it's it's really starting to get talked a lot now in the, in the AVM space. I mean, it's still not getting the same attention as like language models or ChatGPT. But computer vision, in my opinion, is like the biggest step forward in AVMs. So right now, in terms of like automating a, a value of property, you have an AVM and then you have an Evaluation. An Evaluation is basically at a high level, a conditioned informed AVM. So typically you send out a human inspector to validate the condition. That condition comes back and it updates the the actual home value. With computer vision using listing photos, if we can if we can minimize the or reduce the amount of times we have to send out an inspector and just use computer vision to understand the current condition of that property. That has such a huge impact on overall performance, because we all know the condition of the property is so important in valuing a home. If it weren't, then we wouldn't be sending appraisers and inspectors all the time to properties during appraisals to understand the current state of the property. Um, with photos, with the advancement in computer vision, a lot of a lot of progress has been made in really understanding the condition of a house based on a collection of <laughs> listing photos. Um, And that's very, very important in actually having an accurate AVM is having some sort of condition to inform your model of what the current state is. Um, And it's it's very, very important. One of the solutions you'll see a lot of people trying to do now, and and you kind of going back to your question, like what are some kind of edge cases or things that you, you didn't know would cause fairness, but in the computer vision side, what was surprising to me A lot of people were using exterior condition to estimate the condition of the inside, right? Think of like a BPO. So if you have Google Streets or Google Maps and you can take a screenshot, we can use the exterior condition to estimate the interior condition. Well, at House Canary, we did some studies and we showed that those two aren't necessarily correlated. There's a lot of false positives where the exterior condition is high and the interior condition is low and vice versa. So really having these listing photos and a collection of these photos and an image recognition computer vision pipeline to understand that current condition of the interior and the exterior is really what kind of takes AVMs to that next level. And we can really gain trust uh, in the industry of, of having accurate valuations.
0: It's fascinating to hear some of the evolutions you're talking about that uh take these ideas like oh probably the outside of the house looks similarly inside and that's you know just an idea we put in our heads and oh actually it's not true or the the distance to whole foods like that one's fascinating too and um i think just fascinating using data to disprove these ideas that we have or con- concepts or thoughts right that have no real basis in facts
1: i think a lot of the you know at least the computer vision side the whole food ones was that's a hackathon that's just fun to do right but the computer vision one more specifically I think the reason why that process was done, right, is because having availability to the exterior of the house is a lot more cost effective and easier to get when it comes to data. Cause right, everyone knows that data nowadays it's there's so much data, but it's not always cheap. So having interior photos at House Canary, you know, us being a fifty stage brokerage and an MLS member, we're able to have the interior photos of the property when it's listed to understand uh the current condition versus if you don't have that access you have to rely on the exterior photos of using using things like google maps or or maybe a drive-by photo so i think that's where really people are trying to do the best they can with the data they're provided Um, so if you have access to those interior images and you can do computer vision and understand what's actually in that photo uh, and the quality of the condition, that's where you really see AVM start to shine.
0: Where else do you see AI going in real estate? What else has you excited?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, obviously the buzzword today, and I've said it several times today, even though I thought I wasn't going to, uh, the, the famous chat GBT. Uh, I really see, you know, <laughs> this commercial came up this weekend and it made me think of this conversation and it was I think a Microsoft being commercial where it's a Super Bowl party or a fantasy football draft party and the guy totally forgot of, of you know to make food for his friends coming over so he takes out his phone he takes a screenshot or a picture of his empty fridge and says make me a recipe for my friends who are coming over to watch football it generates a recipe he cooks it his friends are happy happy story right not that we're there yet, but I kind of see real estate going in that direction, right? Where you have these large eye buyers who are already requiring people to do walkthroughs with their phone in their house and walk around their house. I'm thinking with this technology, with the language side of things, with the progress made in computer vision, we're going to get to a point where you can type in your address on an app, you can walk around your house, and the AI can basically use the AVM plus the condition of you walking around to value your house. Um, Whether that gets accepted is a different story, but that's kind of the technology where we're at right now. We have the conversational bots with ChatGPT. We have amazing computer vision technologies now where you can get a a flat photo and make a 3D rendering. Like there's so much technology right now that can be implemented in real estate. Uh, Second, I think search... In real estate, will get a lot more customized now, right? We're so used to using platforms where we go click on three bedrooms, two baths, this zip code, and kind of scrolling through a bunch of listings. With the capabilities of ChatGPT, I really think we're going to start to get these like long tailed customized searches where we can basically query this AI and say, hey, I'm looking for four bedroom, three bath." family friendly, I really like uh, craftsman style homes, but I also want to be kind of close to work. That's a very hard query to just manually click buttons and search, especially when you say that's family friendly, like what is family friendly? But I think with ChatGPT, computer vision, those sort of like long tailed queries that are very specific to a user will start to surface more here in, in, in the future where we can actually have these really just great customizable searches for properties.
0: Yeah. I know that there's a, when I go and like poke around on Zillow, there's like, there's definitely a certain style that I'm looking for where I know like, oh, this kitchen, like Michelle would hate that kitchen. Like we're just going to move on I'm gonna delete that tab.
1: Yeah. And traditionally, like the way that's done to fit your needs is through like a recommendation system, right? Like you like this home, you dislike this home. I spent 45 seconds on this address's page, scrolling through photos, and they start to learn your personality through your behavior on a website. But now, you know, with ChatGBT, you, don't, you probably won't have to spend days, weeks, hours on a platform for it to learn your behavior when you can just type in a long search of exactly what you're looking for and let the bot, AI bot, do the
0: rest. That would be pretty exciting. What else is top of mind for you with AI and real estate this year?
1: Uh, I think the big thing in AI and real estate right now um, is definitely on the governance side of things. there always seems to be this fear of of, of AIs taking over the world. Um, that you know iRobot Terminator, you, you know you you name the movie that we're, we're kind of in in the uh, the very intro stages of those movies. Um, and right now in AVMs in general, uh, you know, the, the agencies have released rulemaking on or proposed rulemaking on how AVMs can actually be used. And everything seems to be centered right now in AI and real estate, aside from what we already talked about, is is purely on the non-discrimination piece. With all the agencies, they spent the last nine, ten years meeting weekly to figure out what's an appropriate use case for AVMs. Uh, basically, what they came down to was we need to make sure that AVMs also follow non-discrimination, uh, non-discrimination laws. And so a lot of, uh, of attention and efforts is being placed on that. But more importantly, also what's being placed on is the, the how do we measure confidence, right? Because if you look at what the agencies define as an appropriate AVM, they added the fifth one which is non-discrimination which i think is definitely important in today's uh, environment of valuation but their very first thing they mentioned is that avms have to be high confident how do you ha- how do you know what high confidence is you can't measure the confidence avm without data uh, i'm a huge believer in in third party testing with a large amount of data to validate avms um, and that's huge um Without a, a independent third-party testing, you really can't measure or understand the confidence of AVMs. Um, you need that large amount of sales data uh, to compare AVMs. Um, and the second piece there is you also need to do pre-list understanding or, or, or list-blind benchmark from the data side to really understand if these, these models are accurate. If you don't know what a, a list-blind AVM benchmark is, uh, I've been preaching it to all the agencies and all of my meetings with them, all the think tanks, consumer advocate groups. Everyone always stops and forgets that we need pre-list benchmarks. What that exactly is, is, you know, yourself, Alex, you know, myself, I, we're definitely educated in real estate, right? Uh, I'm in San Antonio my neighbor's house right next to me just listed for $500,000. Between me and you, we could easily guess a number that we think this house is going to sell for, right? We don't need a crazy AI machine learning model to tell me that this house is going to sell for somewhere between $485 and $505. Like we just know how real estate works. That's because I know the list price. So the AVM, when it knows the list price, is going to put a lot of weight on that variable and kind of ignore everything else. Ignore beds, baths, condition, square footage, lot size, because it knows, it's going to learn through training that list price is so correlated with close price. Now, if I take that same example and I use my neighbor to the left, they haven't listed yet, and we say, hey, that house might be... $485 because it's three bedrooms, it's two baths, it's you know decent sized lot, and then we compare it to the sales price three months from now, after it's listed and sold, that's the true measurement of an off-market value that isn't heavily informed or weighted on the actual list price. So when we talk about performance of ABMs, we need to use data to really understand what was the value of this property before it was listed and use that AVM as our true metric. If we don't, we're going to use list price, everything's going to snap to list price, everything's going to be dependent on list price, and that's kind of where you get these inflationary inflationary kind of uh, uh, trends in AVMs is cuz if I'm a realtor, I know I'm going to use the AVM. If I list my house at 580, even though I only know it's worth 500, the AVM's automatically going to snap to a higher list price or higher sales price because the list price was so high. So we really got to use data in order to have high confidence in our estimates and use a pre-list benchmark to make sure that we're not just so dependent on list price to have a true uh, accurate valuation.
0: Got to the core idea being the value of the home is what it would sell for, not what we say that we're trying to sell it for.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So there's like a big debate right now. on like, what is the fair market value of a house? And you know, um, is it the, the construction cost? Like, what would it cost to rebuild this home? Is it the appraisal, right? When it appraises that, is it the the arm's length transaction? Like, what is the true value, fair market value of, of a property? At House Canary, myself, we believe uh, the arm's length transaction is the most fair value of a property just because of the nature of, of what it is, Right. You have a, a, a seller and a buyer, two independent or supposed to be independent parties uh, going back and forth debating on what a house is worth. The seller wants the most money he can get it for, the buyer wants it for the least. If they agree on a price, that's probably the most fair value. So when we train our AVMs, we always try to train to predict that arm length transaction versus uh, an appraised value, which we know historically has had some some issues uh being brought up in, in in recent times
0: that reminds me have you seen margin call i have not seen margin call oh man you have to see it there's a a phenomenal scene uh where they are so it's it's around the financial crisis and they're trying to get rid of all of these mortgage-backed bonds they have um and they're just they're still in their books but they have to get rid of them because they're basically worthless and they decide we're going to sell all of them tomorrow and the the one of the directors is piping up like that's impossible like it'll never happen like you're gonna you're gonna sell crap to people like you know it's worthless but you're gonna try to sell it to them that seems unethical and he he, the ceo retorts no we are selling to willing buyers at the current fair market price and it's just like this this hall of fame quote that i that i think of kind of in, in a a little bit of a malicious way but
1: um, no, I'm definitely going to, I'm going to take it out because that's going to be a good, a good, uh, uh, a metaphor for my future uh, engagements with these with the agencies. But yeah, uh, I think uh, that's, that's the best we got in terms of like understanding accuracy of AVM. We should be comparing it to that tra- arm's length transaction. Uh, we definitely shouldn't be doing, you know, family transfers or, or in my opinion, predicting appraisals a recipe for disaster just because we we've seen the the studies from the data released by Freddie Mac uh, of like historical bias like we should focus on on that currently is it's the it's the least uh, discriminatory alternative to any other kind of target variable when training a model and it's the most fair market value that we have when training models
0: so if there's prior data or sales data for a neighborhood that is biased against those homeowners is that data valuable for training an AVM with the goal of with the goal being to have a fair valuation for future homes
1: yeah i think you know one of the biggest issues that always kind of gets brought to the attention my attention in these conversations is like if you're training a model on historically biased data does that result in biased outcomes right and it, that that concern is definitely legit like it's a, a it's a legitimate concern if if this neighborhood has been undervalued historically for the last thirty years and it's fed into an avm isn't it also going to produce uh biased estimates so when when that first question was posed to me um the first thing I said was I don't know I didn't know the answer I never really went back to our AVM, went back to our data and said, okay, here's a historically African-American, Latino neighborhood that's been undervalued. How are our predictions in the future or now compared to, you know, what they're being undervalued at? So we basically replicated the same test as Freddie Mac did in their study, where right now one of the big issues of data in real estate and AVMs is we don't have property level race or ethnicity information, so we can't really truly do fairness studies until we have loan level ethnicity information. Um, so we do this assumption that if a neighborhood or census tract is eighty percent of a certain ethnicity, then we assume every house in that in that census tract also belongs to that same group. Uh, it's a terrible assumption to make, but it's the best we can do with the data that we're allowed to use uh, in today's in today's environment. But We tested across our entire ABM uh, uh, ecosystem at House Canary of comparing uh, high minority, high uh, African-American, high Latino neighborhood census tracts to those of majority white. And through a properly trained ABM, there was no significant statistical significant difference between performance of those different groups. So how can that be made possible? One of the biggest things I think is at House Canary we really try to understand the trend of the market of the entire market, not just down you know of, of one neighborhood. And when we bring all of the prices to current, so a historical price to current, uh, we see a lot of those those issues kind of disappear because we're able to bring those current prices, those historical prices to current based on the large amount of data that we do have. Um, that and also training uh, our AVM without the use of specific features also reduces any sort of under evaluation as well.
0: Gotcha, that's right. Yeah, because we yeah, we talked about the different features that you could remove plus some of that that correction. It sounds like it helps get a more more fair model. For
1: sure. And then I think the final step too there is just using data to validate your avm right so you know a lot of people can like to think of an avm as a single number like hey one two three apple street is four hundred thousand. but what we do to take a step further to make sure that we don't actually need an appraisal because house canary kind of we believe in this like waterfall method where you know first we start with an avm if we don't meet the data uh, requirements that we define for an avm we then fall to an evaluation. We send out an inspector to validate the rooms, the size, the condition. If we still don't have enough data and confidence there, we then fall to a traditional appraiser. So when we think about those kind of, kind of waterfall method, when we start at an AVM and we kind of ask that question: Are we confident in this AVM? And does it make sense for this neighborhood? And does it is it a accurate value? We use all the statistics of that area to validate that property. So does it fit into the neighborhood norm in terms of square footage, beds, baths? Does it fit into the norm of of sales price? Does it fit into the norm of all these different factors? And we print it out in a PDF form so you can see exactly where that house sits in terms of distribution across the entire neighborhood. When we start to see a property fall outside that distribution, that's when we have to send out an inspector or an appraisal to do to do the the human piece because we don't have enough data to defend our our solution. So, our AVM is not just a single number. There's a lot of other data that comes behind it to validate and provide that condition or that that confidence score to our AVM.
0: That's fascinating. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the House of Data podcast. It's super fun getting to dive into AI especially with a, someone who has a PhD in it. So, thanks for sharing a little bit.
1: No, it's, it's awesome. I love talking about it. Um, it's, it's definitely one of my passions. Never, you know, when I was a math teacher, I never thought I'd be on a podcast about, about AI. And, and, and here we are today.
0: <laughs> here we are. Well, thanks for doing it. Thank you for listening to House of Data. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review and introducing the show to a friend in data to help more folks discover the podcast. For more information about Altus Research and the podcast, Check us out at altusresearch.com or send me an email at alexhwmedia.com. At